Welcome to Five Phenomena Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. I am joined once again this week with Ted Haycraft. Hello. And we are conversing all of the Marvels. We are a movie podcast, but sometimes we are also a comic book podcast. All the Marvels, magnificent book by comic book critic Douglas Wolk. Douglas Wolk read 27,000 Marvel comics and gives you the pathway of the Marvel story. It is a it's his follow-up to his other book, Reading Comics, which are two, if you're interested at all in comics, like this is, I don't know, how would you describe it? It's, it's a great uh, inside-outside, high-art, low-art way of talking about comics. Yeah, um, I always have a problem, you know, I being the, the age I'm at, I remember it was kind of a, a stigma to be a comic book fan and collector at one point, and uh, to see books like this come out and articulate the... Uh, the joy and the artistry and the, uh, the legacy and the legitimacy and legitimacy is a good word uh, of, of these, of these comic books. Uh, Cause bam, pow comics aren't for kids anymore. Yeah, see, yeah, yeah, there's so ever since, especially since Batman 66, there's just a lifetime of that. Yeah. yeah it's still, it still happens. It still happens. That's why uh, I still, I, uh, you'll hear me needling uh, Doug a little bit about it. I think but asking about it asking. um it, there's uh, we you and i were both really excited about this one and there's a certain there's a few episodes i've done this on i'm glad you joined me on this one to do it but there's a certain degree of if you're familiar with the chris farley sketch on snl the chris farley show there's definitely that little bit of degree of that with us yeah. fawning over him yeah it's the, a great book it's the, a great book the book i was like i, I was, cannot read it we gave we, you both you and i both gave reading comics to multiple people and i have been telling everyone about all the marvels yeah I, I plan to give a few out for christmas probably and i uh i i read it so fast i i i want to say i almost got a, a brain freeze out of it because it was just there I, i'm gonna read it again I'm, and i'm still reading bits and pieces and going back to it and it's one of those books it's it's lovely that you can pick it up and uh, read sections of it and put it back down. Well, Ted, what did you watch this week? Well, I did a big, giant theatrical catch-up run, and I got in House of Gucci and uh, King Richard and Belfast. We were in the same screening of House of Gucci, too. Yes, and Spencer and uh, uh, Ghostbusters. Um, yeah, this is the time of the year where every year as I get older, it feels more and more like a chore to go through this, like, I have to stop what I'm watching and let's catch up with the Oscar titles and right. what they're being told. And that's, that's, that's something I'm counting. I got, I'm, you know, way behind all the streaming stuff. But, um, yeah, it's going well, to... I think Belfast was probably the one that rises the highest of that batch I just mentioned. Uh, it's a lot of fun. A little... Uh, even as, as much as, as I enjoyed it, it almost borders on being a little bit too on the nose little bit uh and uh i got the feeling it's gonna stick around for a while yeah, so i may not i i, I may not get around oh to right i think away. amc picks it up so i think it's gonna be it's doubled up now it's showplace and amc so um speaking of the streaming stuff the one movie i saw this week along those lines of oscar stuff that was legitimately great was tick tick boom lynn manuel miranda directed jonathan larson's musical and uh it's not it's it's a written a little bit uh after the musical since jonathan larson died but it's so, and isn't uh, the perception of the, the Heights didn't do as well as they thought it was going to do? So this is kind of good for him, Miranda, to have this. Uh... Uh, yeah, I think that's that's correct, and I liked In the Heights too. I think a lot, everyone generally liked. In yeah, the I don't know. I, I just I don't see there's some weird perception I got. Maybe I'm wrong. No, no, no. I think there was higher expectations. I think but... the pandemic had a lot to do with that. Well, just... I think there was an argument that the pandemic wasn't the good reason why it didn't do as good. Oh. 
I, 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 yeah. That is for historians to decide. That is for someone to write a book all about 2021 and dis- decide the the linear through line of it. Uh, I was trying to do a metaphor, bringing it back to the book, but the Douglas Wolf book. But anyway, this is a long episode, so let's get on with the episode. Uh, sure. Uh, sure. a symbol. <laughs> I spent the last day and a half rereading. Uh, I was catching up on reading comics. And was, Ted and I were talking about this earlier. Like I haven't opened it in a while, but the paper is yellowed in a specific way that almost is apropos of this conversation. And Ted said his copy nice. has done the same thing too. Oh yeah, yeah. I was rereading. I, I, I got. I, I'm getting butterflies in my stomach. This sounds so weird because I'm just so excited to be able to talk to you. Because uh, thank they're, you. They're, well, the reading comics was just a major milestone. I thought when it came out in many ways and then the, and then you do this book and you just kind of like blew my top off oh. uh so uh it's just uh i i want to sit here like about for like five hours to do a five-hour fa- <laughs> confab with you about certain things but we're, i know we, we got to keep it in keep it in control here we just did an episode on uh alan moore two back and i was having trouble gathering my thoughts at the beginning and rereading reading comics i realized i was just using big chunks of your thesis <laughs> well thank you so, yeah, with the, with the, the uh, all the Marvels, I I want to almost I read it so fast when it came out. I I think I developed a brain freeze, and I forgot forgot I forgot so much. Now I need to re. Of course, I plan to reread it again, and and um probably going to be a lot of Christmas gifts uh this uh this Christmas for a lot That's of my so friends. Nice. So so um when so I kind of want to start out by asking um all three of us, but mainly you, Douglas. Um, what was your first comic? was my first comic uh that so i got a lot of like you know richie rich and casper and stuff comics when i was small but the first one that i really really globbed on to was probably an issue of green lantern green arrow and that would have been in the summer of 1978 i just got the one and then a year later i went back to the same newsstand because i was you know upstate new york visiting my grandparents and i got another one and i needed to know what happened next and so a month later, I found another newsstand when I'd gone back to Michigan, and they had the next issue. And then there was another comic that had Green Lantern in it, too. And then there was another thing that looked good, so I picked that up, too. And then the next week, I went back. And then a few weeks later, I learned that there was a store that sold nothing but comics that was down the street. And it was all downhill from there. I mean, that, that's mine. I, I was at some. I was at camp. I, I was at a Walmart, but... Well, mine's a little bit messier, probably, I think, because... Uh... Well, not that messy, but my 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 had an uncle that's five years older than me, okay. And and uh, one thing I wanted to tell you, Douglas, I am a uh, I'm sixty three years old, so I was there when Kirby was still drawing Marvels when I was buying nice. Marvels. Dicko had just left, um, but uh, I'm part of that generation that was just wow. in that in that last buzz of the of the you know before Jack jumped ship to go to DC in nineteen seventy. So my uncle had a whole handful of Marvels. He had, I think, he bought at the PX in London. I had a Sergeant Fury number seven, an FF Annual two. So I was just, uh, I was, I was enamored. I think I was convinced that the really good comics were the ones in the little box in the corner. You know, I think <laughs> I was telling everybody in the neighborhood these are the ones you should buy. And so I started buying. I think my one of the first things I ever bought was the second Ramita Senior Spider Man. Uh, wow. when, uh, well, that was the, probably the first thing I bought with my own much change left over from getting my hair cut 
at the local drugstore. Um, but I, what's funny is I, this, I, I'm glad you pointed out in your book the Marvel's, uh, the Mike's Amazing Cover Gallery website because yeah. you can do that newsstand thing. Yeah. And I figured out that I started buying on my own volition in the summer of '66. Um, nice. And the uh, it's so funny. There's like two or three DCs that summer, and then there's no DCs till 1970. Everything else is Marvel. Uh, so because I, I, I followed Jack over to DC, and then I discovered Neil Adams too, because the Green Lantern Green Arrow started in 1970. So that's that's kind of my little bit of my history there. Well, Douglas, what is your first Marvel comic then? My first Marvel comic. So that's a little bit trickier okay. because the kid across the street from me, uh, Andy Wolf, had uh, Marvels and I had DCs. And so he would read my Green Lanterns and Batmans and Flashes. And he had like Daredevil and Moon Knight. And they were weird and creepy and I liked them and I didn't know what to make of them. And I think the first one I actually bought myself was X-Men 138. Okay. That's 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 a Okay. <laughs> An interesting issue to... Uh... Which is the one that's literally just like summarizing the plot of everything up to that point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I, I think I have that issue somewhere. Uh, I'm in a similar vein where like uh, my first run was DC. It was, um, uh, I started right when William Messenger Lopes was writing Flash at the very tail end of it. But my first run I really glommed onto was Mark Waid's Flash. But okay. Marvel-wise, uh, Service Merchandise, the catalog, used to give out like, I think it was like 11 copies of what came out a certain month. <laughs> And I did that for two. I asked for that for two Christmases in a row. So it was like a. a I'm hearing you got we all three of us. I think are are I, ten years apart, and I think we we're about almost yeah. ten years uh, or a decade apart. Are, are, are at a ground zero. Uh, Part of uh, all of the Marvels, one the the biggest chapter is your X Men chapter, and it's clear your devotion to uh, Claremont Byrne, but also just the X Men run. My first Marvel comic would have been probably one of Claremont's last Uncanny X Men. And then we're both. Uh, you were in a, you were working at a comic book shop in the mid eighties. That I was working at our comic book shop, and I was in charge of ordering the stuff. I would, and we, and we actually would uh, because of when Watchmen and Dark Knight start coming out, we were so excited we would actually get the, our my own little Honda Civic and drive to the, uh, the Glenwood in Illinois and pick up the the book the boxes themselves and bring them back <laughs> so we could get to them earlier. You know, get to them right wow. away. Well, so when did you start working at a comic book store? So I started hanging out at the comic book store all the time in 1980. And I think it was in 83 that they were like, okay, we're just going to teach you to use the register. <laughs> Isn't that a common thing? Between yeah, same, yeah, same here. So, yeah, so it's, it's they're like, all right, you're, you're the kid who's here. Every, it's fine, fine. We'll, we'll hire, fine. We'll hire you. <laughs> How long did you uh, end up working? Um, so I worked there until I went to college in 87 and then I would come back on winter breaks and they would be like, great, you're back. You got to fill in. And I came back for a few months after I got out of college and was working there again. And I was like, okay, you know what? Love this place. I have to get out of here. But uh, like the store is still there. It mm -hmm. is no longer a comic store. It's uh, It was a used bookstore to begin with and it's still a used bookstore. But like it's still there. Curious Bookshop in East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, run by the same guy who's been running it for fifty plus years. But he dropped the comics, huh? Uh, he dropped he dropped the comics. So the comics were upstairs for a long time, and then they were around the corner in kind of a separate annex, and then that closed when everything imploded in the early nineties. But he's still a used bookstore, and uh, like his his 
employees are unbelievably loyal to him. He, he could not pay us very well, but he treated us incredibly well. And so like his staff has all been there for like 20, 30 years. Yeah, we had a similar boss. Uh, he just passed I'm, away. I'm just seeing a lot of parallels. Here. Yeah, the book broker uh, is the longest running store in Evansville, Indiana, where we're from. And uh, I started hanging around there. When he opened, I saw an article in the paper about this new little used bookstore. It was a little shack. And I went, got in the car and went straight there. Uh, and uh, You would have been late 70s though, right? 16, 17 years old in the 70s. It's mid-70s. And the comic book stores were just starting to populate the country. So to act to square this entire circle, <laughs> you're talking about uh, Bill Messnerlobe's uh, run on the Flash. Yeah. So I teach comic history at Portland State, and a few weeks ago we were talking about uh, Bill Messner Bill Messnerlobe's Journey, mm-hmm. and uh, like I absolutely love that series. Diana Schutz used to teach the class, and this term she was taking the class from me, which is kind of intimidating. Like she's she's amazing. <laughs> like she's been. This is the same, everything. like, Bendis teaching at a, at a similar... Yeah, yeah. Same, okay. I guess she yeah. needed the credit, because, I mean, she knows... She would know it inside and, she, and out. She she was auditing the class just as, you know, like, senior auditor. And, like, not only do you know all this stuff, like, you lived all this stuff. Yeah. What, and, was, what were you uh, teaching her that she didn't know? What, I mean, was she wanting to get fill in her million messenger loaves gaps? <laughs> I have no... Well, well, no, no, she like, would know that. She would, she would I never... mentioned William messenger loaves, and uh, I said, like, you know, and that he did this for a few years. And then uh, he uh, went on to write The Flash and Wonder Woman for DC. And I think he wrote, like, Johnny Quest first. And he was like, and she said, actually, I hired him to write Johnny Quest for Kamiko. <laughs> like, yes, of course he did. Okay. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you. Um, wow. When, was, when did you first start uh, getting some freelance pieces or some press for comics? When did you start writing comic stuff? So start writing comic stuff. Um in 1993, I started working for a music magazine. I was uh, writing, I was uh, a managing editor at CMJ Mus- New Music Monthly. Okay. And they needed to fill pages because they had no freelance budget. And they're like, well, let's do a couple pages every month about other media. I was like, okay, great. And I started, like, I wrote like a piece about Doom Patrol, uh, the Grant Morrison Doom Patrol. And um, that led to a couple of other places saying like, hey, do you want to write, write about some comics for us? which great. Um, and I'm, I still made most of my living writing about music until six or seven years ago. Um, and then gradually shifted over to a little bit of the stuff about music and a whole lot of stuff about comics. Okay. I was, I was rereading your blog and I was, I was seeing how that, how much of it was music based in your first book is the, uh, the, 33, uh, the half series, the James the Brown book. Yeah. Yeah. Live at the Apollo. I, I haven't read that, but I have similar feelings that Ted does on reading comics where I thought I was a distillation of, I, I, I think you're one of our finest comic critics. I, I really so, was, I've been reading comics criticism, trying to find what to get into for the longest time. And you describe it so well in reading comics, how the fight between mainstream and art comics. And I remember really, it was at one point early in the book, you have the section on uh, why I hate my culture. And you talked about certain things in the in comic stuff that and I was like, yeah, yeah. And part of it was like, okay, this is in the back of my head. I didn't realize it until I came to the uh, two sections later, how I've read certain things like that before. But then you said why I love my culture. And I started realizing half the reason I read comics is to talk to other people about comics. And it, it was, it was such a great take on it too, just because half of, half of the, the, the divide between the mainstream and the art debate is 
the mainstream gets us in and then we turn around and like oh we need to grow up and read more deeper stuff and go to the art get to the art and then but it still means so much. Both means so much to us. Oh, there's so much I want to unravel there. But because <laughs> I because when I when I read reading comics, I thought, OK, you're you know, you're over here in the comics journal, Gary Groth art side and 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 all the wonderful stuff that's coming out and happening. And I, I like this quote that Michael Yuri, I read it in uh, uh, Back Issue magazine recently. where He goes, we grew up with comics, but also comic books grew up with us. And, and we got to see that happen in front of our eyes. And now we have all this wonderful stuff that you don't have to read guys in their underwear beating each other up. But the allure of those Marvels and those DCs and stuff is still so potent and so strong. I was I was shocked when you came out, you were announcing this book that you were going to do this. Because I guess I thought you had you're, you were pretty much planted your foot in the art or the independent or alternative field. So where do you stand on that? Where, where do you, I mean, how do you, are you, are you still a strong mainstream reader as much as a alternate alternative reader I'm, or what? I'm, I'm kind of both. Um, and the, the last two years when I was working on this book, I was just like all Marvel all the time. Um, and that was a little hard to take, but like, I, I read everything. I read everything. <laughs> I went to, I went to silver sprocket, uh, the store last month in San Francisco. And I was just like, I need everything in this store right now. But also, you know, like I'll bring home a stack of like ten Marvel DC image books every week. Uh, I that's I read all that. I read I read it all. I there are so many things that I like so much. Like, and of course, like the the punchline is that if I had to pick one giant body of comics work that would be like my favorite, it'd probably be Judge Dredd. Because you you've written Judge Dredd comics before. <laughs> Which is just like that's like well that's a third option. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that coming. The uh, the uh, wow. Uh, did you? So do you? Do you have a any kind of sense of as you get older? I you know I'd like I need to read I need to read James Joyce's Ulysses. Why am I reading these comic books and see, stuff? Because because one of the things I get from it is that you seem well read all across the board, not just in comics. Used to be a little more than I am. Like after I finished, after I finished the book, I was like, "It's time to go back to the pile of prose books that have been piling up with lots of little words and no pictures." So okay, yeah. but oh, look, but... the pandemic has destroyed my attention span. Damn. Okay. <laughs> I think one of the things that came from uh, reading comics that I like were that that kind of in a good way aggrandized mainstream readers was one concept that I, I was reciting to everyone was your concept of super readers. The ones that can remember continuity from 30 years back, which I think really leads us into all of the Marvels. Yeah. Uh, and why do you with all the Marvels, it makes me think about I have some kind of like thesis bubbling in my head. I was telling I always bounce this off Shane and my other comic book uh, fellow comic book fans that there's a certain generation of us and I think you might squeeze in. I'm not sure. Uh, I know Shane's too young for it, but it's uh, that we were there in that first flush of Marvel and that excitement, that buzz and the things, you know, percolating and Batman 66 was out, even though that's divisive. So with some people and blah, blah, blah. 
that uh, we just can't let go of it. It's like in our DNA because there was no cable. There was no VHS. There was no Laserdisc. There was no video games. Uh, you, you, you had three channels. If your dad wanted to watch Dean Martin variety show, then you didn't get to watch Green Lantern or uh, Green Hornet, you know, or Bat, you know. It was, so we read these comic books to death. We read them over and over. And, and the excitement of what Stan, Jack, and Steve. They were yours. We were doing it. You know, you could control it, read it as, as, at your leisure over and go. And we, and then you trade with other kids. There's no comic book stores either. So I think there's something about this, this lock we have on this, this generation has a lock on it. I wonder what's going to happen when this generation finally, the baby boom, the last tail end of the baby boomers pass away. Will that change the whole uh, face or makeup of the, what we see in terms of mainstream comics? Because this, this superhero lock is kind of ridiculous in a weird way, but, it, but, but part of it is we just can't let it go. Some seems, seems like, uh, I mean, the, does that make the sense? mainstream now in terms of like what people buy and buy and buy is Rena Telgemeier. It's Dav Pilkey. Like those are getting sales now that, you know, Carl Barks and Ditko and Kirby in the 60s could only have dreamed of. Right. Are you talking about stuff like the uh, uh, YA market or stuff that's being yeah. put into bookstores? Okay. Yeah, totally. Um, like those books sell like crazy. That is a mainstream of comics now. It's yeah. not the only mainstream, but it is like something that there is a generation that has now glommed onto. And that's kind of amazing. Oh, well, I mean, what do you make of that, I guess, going forward? for like, I mean, it's hard to predict what another generation is going to... Because we keep on thinking they're going to die out. At some point, something's going to have to happen. But it, they still hang in there. You know, they're still hanging in there, the, the, the mainstream stuff. Yeah, and you know, the superhero comics, they're not going away. Or, you know, they've been dying since 1938. But <laughs> right. every time I hear like, oh, it, it's done, it's going to be gone in six months, gone, you know, distribution, kept. like there's all kinds of economic and distribution and zillion problems with it. And yet they hold on and they keep selling a little bit more every year. Um, they're like, they're like Funyuns, you know, they, they, don't, they don't need anybody to hyper promote them. They just kind of, keep on going miraculously there there is that part in our, the, all the marvels where you talk about how you think today's comics are going to read but you're curiously hoping that the comics in the 2040s are going to be just as hope you hope they'll be just as relevant um let, let, let's get to the premise of the book so basically <laughs> you read uh over twenty seven thousand issues of marvel comics ostensibly from um you go a little before Fantastic Four number one, um, all the way up to about um, 2016. Although you go well past 2016, you read. You point out at one point over five uh, five hundred and forty thousand pages of Marvel comics. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, we have a friend. Um, I don't, I don't want to phrase I want to phrase this in a way that it doesn't get you in trouble but or, or us in trouble but uh back in the, in the odds when we first heard this concept of reading the entire Marvel linearity from a torrent that went up that promised to have like I don't remember how many gigs it was but it promised to have all the Marvel stuff and I think even at one point you used the phrase uh of how you got all that really long sec or that section where you explain how long you've been reading these you do use the phrase sketchy province so uh, uh but did you are you familiar with this torrent or where did you first think of like I should go through everything? Okay, well I mean because your son well, it was your son's idea, right? Yeah. That, yeah. Go ahead. Like it was my son's idea, like, you know, 
you know, I want to read all. Yeah. Uh, okay, kid, you'll you'll read all of it. And then we read a bunch together and I was like, huh, I wonder what would happen if I did read all of it. And like I say, it was genuinely not hard to track down everything that like the stuff that was hard to find was, you know, a lot of like custom comics and things like that. Uh, but I have a lot of friends who have things or have access to things like that. Tracking stuff down was not the hard part, like just making it through all of it without turning into the flaming carrot was the hard part. <laughs> were you rereading everything or were you like sometimes being like, I read this run. I don't need another read at this run. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought at first like, okay, like if I read it and I remember it really, really, really well, I don't need to read it again. Wow. And then I thought, you know, if I remember it and I re- remember it really, 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 I probably want to read it again. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I kept going back things and going like, oh yeah, this has changed since I read it before or I've changed uh, or yeah. Okay. Well, your okay, Sa- yeah. your Sal Basima <laughs> story, like how Sal, you know, you you probably originally thought Sal wasn't that great an artist, but then when you go back, now you're looking at him in a different light, a whole different light, which that happens with me with all kind of artists. Uh, I, I used to think Sikowski on Justice League was the, the weirdest, wonkiest thing I'd ever seen and didn't like it at all. Now I love it. It's got such a quirkiness yeah. to it. Uh, in yeah, my totally. uh, did you now did you your son said he 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 got done with the sixties you jumped ahead to uh, uh, a few uh, the uh, the current civil war basically. civil war right so uh, had you started the book at this point at the idea or were you just doing this with your son when, oh when, no at that point I was just doing it with with my son I was not even reading everything with him I was like reading some stuff with him and then he was reading some stuff on his own oh but I started thinking like I really want to do like a big comics writing project about some big body of work and have a big project I can throw myself into that'll maybe take like as much as two years or even two and a half years to like do all the reading and do all the writing. Yeah, I can do that. I thought like, yeah, this'll, this'll maybe take two and a half years. Six years later, here we are. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. So that, that fits that number. I was going to ask you, you mentioned the number six years ago is when you kind of mainly started pushing on to comics. Was there any uh, comic related project in between this and reading comics or, I mean, six I mean, years to, to devote to this makes sense. I guess there were, there were a lot of magazine articles. I was doing graphic novel reviews from New York times book review for a long time. There was the judge dread book that I wrote, which was like, we should blog just about the most fun thing I've ever gotten to do. Really? I mean, I, I, I got I got a blind spot. For, I'm going to go out and order that tonight when I get off. When we, get, when we leave here, I didn't even know you did that. It was uh, it was such a blast to do, and I got to work with this artist Ulysses Farinas, who is brilliant, and like I'd I'd always wanted to be able to collaborate on a comic with someone, oh. and it was super 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 collaborative like he and i were texting each other seven or eight times a day uh i was just gonna go one of the central premises of the book is the that the marvel saga is possibly the longest saga in human history you have the quote in here of marcel proust times doris lessing times robert altman to the power of the maria marita which you say is uh, 13,000 page volumes um which you also have the footnote in there is technically the Incredible Hulk is longer than that. <laughs> I mean, it. the Incredible Hulk has fewer words and more of them no. are smash. More smash. Uh, uh, in, in terms of you know, scope, I think, I think I'm probably right about that. You know, there are certain soap operas that have been running since the 1930s or 1940s in one form or another. Okay. Um, 
but it seems different somehow uh in part because like how are you how are you going to judge bigness for a visual medium or, or audio medium because some of those soap operas started as radio shows uh and also because there's not the kind of institutional memory about it mm. like some somebody who is you know watching days of our lives or search for tomorrow in in the present or recent decades when search for tomorrow was still going on could not have been necessarily expected to like have a sense of like what important things happened on the show 40 years earlier they're not streaming earlier audio only versions of this <laughs> yeah and, and like you can track down like dvd sets of old general hospital episodes but it's, it's not the same as like you have this library and there's this this sense of of the big picture so the big reason dc um just because it seems like they started getting more into continuity following marvel or is it a thing of like does the reboots count too just because marvel yeah. has never really completely marvel's never, never rebooted. rebooted and dc has two or three times said like yeah everything up to this point not so much even if we're bringing it back in later retroactively if i can yeah. if i can interject here that's another thing about i was like i told you i didn't I didn't stick with DCs for a little bit till I got older. Uh, but I thought DC was cool. The one thing they had that was cool was they had Earth 1 and they had Earth 2. And I would tell my dad, I'd go, Dad, the comic books you read, because my dad said he read comic books, you read those those were on Earth 2. The ones I'm reading now are Earth 1. So I thought that was a really cool concept. And what do they do in 1985? They decide it's too complicated. And I, and I thought that was... The, <laughs> And it's a it's a great story, and God bless George Perez, who we got, we got the, the such a yeah, sad news. That, that's that's. It's a great story. I love reading that crisis story, but it was such a mistake in such a way that now they just keep now they just both companies have given up and said, hey, everything's a multiverse now. I didn't even know, and I'm so happy that you explained where Earth six one six came from because I didn't I wasn't reading those issues where all of a sudden like why is everybody referencing this as earth 616 i thought it was an alan moore thing and Cap uh, the captain britain stuff uh, and so it's it's almost an alan moore thing okay uh <laughs> alan moore was the first person to use the number on the page but he's not the person who came up with the idea okay uh it was the previous writer dave thorpe uh who was like okay this is earth 616 okay where was Alan Moore referencing Marvel in uh, Captain Britain? Oh, Captain Britain. Oh, yeah, that's right. Captain Britain. Sorry. Uh, so, I think it's one of the travesties. We're never going to, never going to ever see the Fantastic Four written by Alan Moore. What you asked, what he wanted to do first when he came over here, uh, and I, I, I thought I would, I would love to see that happen, but it's not going to. Speaking of Fantastic Four, I thought one of the, the big um, ice um, insights you had was trying to figure out exactly. Uh, why Marvel took off the particular genre hybrid. Um, you talk about how, um, uh, well, first off, you have this great quote at the beginning where it's um, Marvel can be its high adventure, slapstick comedy, soap opera, blood spattered horror, tender character study, and political allegory all in the same week. And it's adventure serial comic that's also superhero comic and also a monster comic and also a romance comic and also a teen horror comic. And also a sci-fi comic all at once, but not a crime comic. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's hard to see like what is so immediately special about Fantastic Four at the beginning from where I am, being really used to it. And I, But I've read some things by people who picked up those early issues and it blew their minds. John Byrne has written about it. Fred Hembeck has written about it. And just like seeing these things and you're like, 
never seen anything like this before and trying to kind of retro engineer that feeling mm. like what's what's so amazing about this what is so special about this um like even reading it now when i was reading it with my kid the, the early stuff he was like okay yeah this is kind of fun and by a couple of dozen issues in he, he was like okay this has gotten really good now <laughs> yeah my point was that with the MCU's popularity um, or taking stuff like even South Korea's influence on current cinema, like genre hybrid is the future of at least movies and Marvel's MCU's popularity seems to be. I just thought it was a keen insight. Well, no, I think it's a, a perfect insight. I thought I, when I read that, I have read John Byrne and him back some of those uh, things. But when you said that romance, you, 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 you listed it off. I'm like, that's the magic. And that's probably what. I remember it was so funny. You look back retroactively, look back now and see DC trying to get hip. It with Carmen was trying. They, you know, they were Anthro and Bamba and Brana Beast and the Secret Six. They were trying so desperately to try to be hip, and they just they couldn't nail it. it. Took a while before they got they got it down. When Denny, Denny and some other people started, you know, getting into gear. But man, it was just something. So uh, Stan, Jack, and Steve just somehow hit that hybrid uh notion of well and i think you i think that's what's so exciting about your book is that you actually see it articulated and trying to figure out why are these comic books so magical there's actually a little uh there's an alternate version of linda carter chapter uh that i ended up uh printing up his little chapbook and it got sent out to people who pre-ordered the book from my favorite comic book store books with pictures. And okay. the alternate version is just a completely fictional history of Marvel in, in the sixties and early seventies, um, which is just imagining if the kind of aesthetic and commercial breakthrough comic had been Linda Carter student nurse rather than mm. fantastic four. And if Marvel had thrown all of their resources into doing these crazy hybrid comics that are at their core comics about, you know, young professional women and teenage girls. So, you know, uh, amazing adult fantasy changes its name to amazing adults. And, uh, you know, Betty of the bugle is in there and she spins off into her own series and yeah, all that. Have stuff. you ever read, uh, there's an essay by Michael Chabon. I'm, um, I'm really fond of where he writes the alternative history of American prose. If it does, uh, I think it's the nurse novel or something like that. Oh, and wow. He, it's in it's in one of the McSweeney's uh, anthologies. I think it's the nurse novel, but he talks about what Thomas Pynchon and Philip Ross nurse novels would be like. That sounds amazing, and I have to find it. <laughs> it, it well, it's interesting you bring that up too, because I bet you there's a chance that could have happened. Maybe Martin Goodman, Martin just wanted to be a copycat and flood the market with what was he, and he, they had something right in front of their eyes, and they didn't even see it probably. And, he, and then he heard the Justice League that was selling, and give me a team book. Uh, and uh, so therefore the Linda Carter aspect. Douglas, have you read the Abraham Reisman um, um, biography of Stan Lee? Stan Lee bio, yeah. Yeah. That was another reason just because uh, Ted and I have had a lot of conversations on it. He and I have different And I love how in the book you just kind of like, the debate's there, let's get past it. But <laughs> I found the biography had a really interesting idea of Stan's talent being caption writing. And going back to this synthesis of what it was, you still, I still found you have found a generous way of like pointing out everyone's contribution. I, I that's why I was curious, like in, also, in your observation, why Marvel took off more than anybody else. Well, I also, what do you, uh, I think Jack Kirby's fingerprints 
are so strong on everything. I think even I, I hate this might be I might be tarred and feather for saying this, but even Doctor Strange is really a reworking of Doctor Droom in, in, in some ways. And Kirby did you know worked in the original Doctor Droom, and then Kirby was supposed to do a Spider Man, but Stanley didn't like his Spider Man, but he ended up doing the cover. And then he actually contributed to some Daredevil one, you know, on the cover and stuff. So it's like, it's almost like Jack is just whatever he had, his career had been building up to something happened and he just exploded, you know? Yeah. I think um, like, it's absolutely true that Kirby's fingerprints are everywhere, but I think you also have to acknowledge that like Lee's fingerprints are everywhere more than anything else as an editor, as the person who says like, yeah, that idea. Or like, not so much of that. Like, and you then you get to see these people who have been working in comics for decades already suddenly turn into something much more than they had been. I mean, the, the other thing I've, I really love about the book is also that you talk about it being like one of the grandest collaborations, uh, yeah. considering it's a sustained thing. And... Um, in like just a synth- in how much it's not planned it's never gonna it doesn't technically have a beginning it's never gonna have an ending it's all being improvised as it goes along you have that one point whenever you use the typical fan complaints about this character wouldn't say that and you're like well they just did because it's in a marvel <laughs> canon comic uh i wanted to get to the spider-man chapter um you the I, keep, I, keep, I mean, uh, this is a recurrent theme of this conversation. I know we're just talking at you right now, uh, quoting you from the book, <laughs> but it's just like you, you distill so much of uh, a synthesize so much of what makes these things work and from, but in it and also from a distance. Anyway, I wanted you to go through the cycles of Spider-Man. You had like, was it four cycles total in the book? I think we're up to like six now, something like that. Okay. <laughs> the first one goes to Gwen Stacy's death. Yeah. So the, um, the pattern is like, Peter Parker starts at the bottom uh, and has to get me. He starts out being alienated from what he could be. Like he's a kid who's lost his parents one and a half times already. Like second time, like his second father dies and he's pretty sure it's his fault. And how is this messed up, terrified kid going to become an adult is the premise of Spider-Man for its early years. And you see him gradually like take on this other identity to try to make his way into the world. Uh, and there's a point in the middle of it where, like, you know, Spider-Man no more. He's like throwing the costume in the trash, throwing this alter identity in the trash. And then he realizes, like, no, that's not what's keeping me from being able to grow up. It's what's allowing me to be able to grow up. And he goes and reclaims it. And then there is a point that is kind of a happy ending. Uh, which is right before Stanley hops off. Uh, it's I, uh, you know, I remember in particular you pointed out Spider-Man was going for prison reform at that moment. Yeah, like talking about prison reform, he's on TV. He's suddenly on like got a salary job at the Bugle. Uh, <clears throat> he's thinking about uh, like maybe proposing to Gwen. Like they, like he's got it together. And then the next issue is supposed to be called the Summing Up. And it's actually like the one where he wakes up and he's got six arms and then Stan like goes off and whatever. <laughs> but then that all falls apart. Um, Norman Osborn kills Gwen. Norman Osborn dies himself. Bam. He's knocked all the way back down. 
and he has to start the second cycle. And the second cycle starts with him fighting all the same people he fought at the beginning, all the sort of like surrogate father characters, all of the older male scientists and pro wrestler types your and, father like, figure observation was the one of the ones i liked a lot the uh, him you. constantly going for father figures and yeah uh, and like the two the two biggest father figures are like dr octopus who right near the beginning like nearly marries aunt, aunt may <laughs> like yeah. could you put any more of a bow on it <laughs> uh, and norman osborne who is the like rich successful father who turns out to be like an absolutely terrible father who like cursed his son to be like him um and builds his way slowly back up again there's another crisis on campus there's uh the moment of abandoning the other self is the clone story where he like takes the other version of himself who has died and throws him down into a uh like a a trash chute a, a smokestack uh like None of this can have been intentional. None of this can have been what Jerry Conway had in mind or what Stanley had in mind. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, it just sort of assumes this form. And this goes on until the point where he gets his like classical comedy happy ending and marries Mary Jane. Um, and that is the false, false happy ending. Uh, immediately after they get married, the next month we get Craven's Last Hunt, where the other kind of father figure, the sort of like showman, showman type, type, the pro wrestler type, kills him, sticks him in the ground, takes over his life, and then kills himself. And Peter has to literally dig his way out of his own grave to start the next cycle. And actually, immediately after that, there's the uh, that three part story that Anne Nascenti wrote, where like you know he loses his mind and like. So, like, you destroy the body and then start that over again. You destroy the mind. He has to build himself up from that. And you start again. Uh, and where that one feels like it's supposed to end is the big clone story in the mid-90s, which is where we were supposed to find out that, like, the other self that he abandoned has come back. And uh, you know, and Ben Riley was supposed to, like, take over being Spider-Man so Peter Parker uh, could retire since Aunt May has now died. So sad. We'll never see her again. And... Uh, uh, Mary Jane is pregnant and they're going to go off to Portland, Oregon, where I live and settle down. Um, and that was the plan. And then everyone was like, you can't do that. So we're, we're getting to the period of Spider-Man where I, that was my big period. Yeah. And it's so, so much nineties comics in general are misbegotten that I, whenever I talk to someone like Ted, I can't defend any of this stuff. And, and it's, it's not, it's not necessarily, I read it and it's ingrained in my memory, but it may not be to me but that's where like your doppelganger interpretation really made sense too but you thought the the riley saga would have made a an interesting if if follow through they follow through with it it would have been good too or at least in the broad sense i mean it it's dramatically it dramatically completes the story it lets somebody else take over being and like right now ben riley is also being spider-man again yeah like there's 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 something to that idea but also, like, there was the sense of, like, you mean the story we've been following for the last 20 years is not the real Spider-Man? Cracks knuckles. Yeah. It, um, it's. Uh, w- w- did you ever find the origin of the Stanley quote, the illusion of change that I know Bendis uses a lot? Like, uh... Never found a source for it. Okay. I, I cannot trace it back to a specific thing that Stanley has been quoted as saying. I think the earliest one I found is 
like Steve Englehart mentioning it in an interview like six years later. Okay. So, yeah. Um, you Brand New Day and uh, One More Day was where I stopped reading Spider-Man for years because for, for that exact reason. Whereas like my entire tri- my entire reading of Spider-Man and responsibility involved marriage. So yeah. I mean, I did. I never read a lot of the romance stories stuff in it. So, like, and part of it was so how cheaply they like, like, yeah, all realities erased except everything else. That I, I just like, I can't. I, I, it was years before I was able to get back into Spider-Man after that. Uh, I wanted to throw uh, one interpretation at you. I just read the other day. So James Cameron has this coffee table book coming out of mm-hmm. his uh, art, and there's some stuff in there about his Spider-Man apparently, and he was giving an interview about it. And he gives the usual stuff. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard this, that a lot of his version was going to deal with Spider-Man and puberty, where, like, the web shooters were right. a, a big meta- metaphor. Right. But he has this quote in there where gets the movie stuff really well, where he says Spider-Man's a great metaphor for that untapped reservoir of potential that people have that they don't recognize themselves. Huh. Yeah, I can hear that. I mean, that that is the lifting the big the big heavy thing thing, right? Um, I... I I have a whole rant about like Spider-Man, the big heavy thing, but that's, that's how many times they've redone the done that. And Uh, well, specifically how it's turned into this symbol of like, yeah, we know what we're talking about. We are talking (laughs) about the same Spider-Man here. Like there are quick little allusions to it in like uh, homecoming. There's a quick little allusion to it in the Marvel Spider-Man, like a video game from a couple years ago. And you know, the, in the movie, it's he's going like, "Come on, Spider-Man! Come on, Spider-Man!" There's the one in Civil uh, War, the movie too. Yeah, the, I mean, it's always just like a quick moment, but it's like, yeah, we know what we're doing here. Ted has the same rant, actually. It's so funny you're saying this. Yeah, uh, but it's also become like shorthand for the moment everybody knows, which is interesting. Like the number of times we've seen parodies of it in the last five or 10 years is just remarkable. Do you have any, I mean, not just to, to completely go off, but like, I, I, I mean, I've, I've read some of those old issues, but it's been so long I can't remember. And I, I don't remember going all the way through the Ditko run. I really first was like told this is a sequence to pay attention to from uh, from your work i like so like what is do you have a a sense of the legacy of something like reading comics where people came up to you afterwards and like oh this is something we should pay attention to just because is it i mean like that that sequence specifically i had seen called out a bunch of times before then okay um gil kane talked in a at few different interviews about how like this was a formative thing for him. He actually did versions of it in a couple of DC comics in the eighties. Um, there's one with Captain Marvel and there's one with somebody else. Uh, and the, f- the first homage to it, the first homage to it that Marvel does is actually in a Hulk story in the Hulk magazine in 1980. Uh, and then there's one in one of Walt Simonson's Thor stories. <laughs> the scene where the frog is lifting the hammer is beat for beat that scene. It's been a while since I've read that one. <laughs> but I'm, With, that within makes... my body, like he says, within my body is the strength of many frogs. <laughs> you 
and Ted have been helpful to me to like pay more attention to. I remember you talked about the flexibility of Ditko and 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 I try to pay attention to that. But like Ditko for me is Rorschach, you know, like it's it's, it's rough. Yeah. Um, I wanted to bring yeah. up the Master of Kung Fu chapter because that is the one chapter I have oh, yeah. read nothing of, and I just wanted you two to go at it. Oh well, gosh, but you know, I was scared that we would never get to see uh, a nice reprint of it because of the licensing to the Romer Estate. And all of a sudden, yeah. they put. I think they're. I, I don't think they're going to keep that license up. So I think the reprints are going to probably shoot up in collector's prices because it doesn't have to be licensed it, anymore. It's you think so? The Romer? I don't think they're going to use Fu Manchu anymore, though. They're not, yeah. Well, no. But they're, but they're not using <laughs> Nayland Smith or you know Doctor Petrie and all those characters. Yeah. I thought I thought there was still uh, some copyright on that. Depend. Uh, you think it's that old? The uh, the state on that. I, uh, I, I am not a lawyer, <laughs> but that's, but we all date, but so. that we all figured that was the holdup because they didn't uh, they didn't want to put out the extra bucks. I think the uh, omnibuses have a, a copyright reference to the R- Romer's Day. I don't oh, know. Okay. I have to double check that, but that's we were so happy to see that because friend of mine, I we a friend of has this uh, little game he plays. He's like, what would you what if the house is on fire? What comic books would you grab and run out of it? And of course, it's number probably number one is Manhunter, like Simon said, a good good one, Simon said. But, but it, the uh, Minch Galassi Kung Fu's are right there, baby. Wow. I don't know if you when you read these now. Did you read? Um, did you reread them again for the for the book for the book? Oh yeah, oh yes. I always thought it was weird because the early run of Galassi, he's you could see him working things out, and then he disappears for a few issues. Even though I think he was over actually in Deadly Hands, the magazine. But, but there was like a few issues and I had dropped out. I said, well, this is kind of meandering and it's not, and they can't figure out who the artist is. And I gave up on it. So I'm with my grandparents in Lexington, Kentucky. We're going to go to the drugstore. And I see this, uh, another Gil Kane cover because Gil Kane was everywhere on Marvel. So I pull it up and that's, you know, and also that Razor Fist story where Glacey comes back and also they're doing James Bond movies with the splash pages. And, and I thought, he's, this is like, he's gone to the crossroads. Because his artwork just took a leap forward, I thought. I don't know if that did that feel that way to you. There was like a a shift in his and art. It, it definitely ramps yeah. up in a hurry. I don't know if he was away from it at all. I think he was. He he drew a couple of yeah, issues oh, yeah, giant, the giant size, size too. Right. Like it, it's kind of it. Like he's kind of there from the beginning. It's just you know, the the learning curve that anybody has. But yeah, but by the time he's gotten about a dozen issues in, suddenly he's just astonishing. And like my. My favorite period of that series is probably the Gene <laughs> okay. Day period. Right. Oh, that's, yeah, it's, it's just it's as interesting uh, as the, the other one, uh, the Zach period and the Glacy period. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's just beautiful, beautiful stuff. And like I said, I thought when I, when I started writing about it, like it was long enough ago that it was like, I started the chapter with like, there's never going to be a Master of Kung Fu movie. There's <laughs> never going to be a Master of Kung Fu video game. A couple months ago, I bought I bought it Shang Chi little yeah yeah I, I did too <laughs> yeah and it like Blackjack Tar and Lake of Wu are in it like it's like it's I know it's a whole I, thing I couldn't believe that that was amazing but uh, and they kept the father son dynamics in the movie you know it, yeah. you know even yeah, though totally. it's not you know the Shang Chi that I kind of remember it's still got the whole the, the subtextual uh, thematic elements is there. So it's it's yeah. been yeah. because I thought well if they're gonna do a a martial oh they they actually did on the TV but the Iron Fist Iron Fist is the one that's it seems like a natural because he's more superhero war superhero ish I guess uh, but uh, I, I was I was amazed too that they actually came through with Shang Chi 
Who was the artist that um, was at the end that died just uh, shortly or shortly after the run-in? Gene uh, Day. Yeah, Jean that was. Day, there's yeah. a little some kind of interesting controversy they were trying to stir up about that too at the time. Well, Douglas, you say that you thought he he would have been one of the majors if he had survived. Oh yeah, I mean he was one of the majors. He just just on the basis of just if you if you look at his issues of Master of Kung Fu, like I showed a couple of them to my students, and they were like. How have I never I, heard of this? Guy? I mean, reading that chapter, there, there's a lot of instances in the book where you're just like, "Shit, I got another run to read." And, <laughs> but that was a that was a big one. Uh, a lot of my gateway in the last few years is Bendis, which I've mentioned like multiple times. And you write more about um, Daredevil and reading comics than you do. Um, you write about you mentioned it quite a few times in all the Marvels. But did you ever think about doing a, Mar- a Daredevil chapter? So my friend Stephanie Burt, who was one of my close readers on this book. Uh, kept pushing me like why isn't there a daredevil chapter there ought to be a daredevil chapter uh and i never did write the daredevil chapter partly it's because i don't have a coherent argument about daredevil okay uh partly because like there's a bunch of different runs of daredevil that i like a whole lot and they're practically different comics like i love the frank miller stuff i really love the Anne nascenti john romita jr al williamson stuff those issues are gorgeous and they're weird and there's still nothing else like them. I really like the Bendis stuff. And it also seemed like anything that I could say about them would just kind of overlap with stuff that was already in the book. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that I wrote for this that ended up getting cut. Okay. Uh, there are a bunch of chapters that were just like, this is okay, but I already have another thing that does this better that's in here. So out it goes. Was there a lot cut or what? Yeah. Oh. Uh, well, I so I basically ended up writing this book twice. That's good writing. It's, well, uh, <laughs> wrote the first time and finished it, and then it was terrible. Oh. It was not good. It was boring. It was exhausting to get through. It was me talking to the inside of my head, and I started over. I threw out like eighty-five percent of what was there, and threw out a bunch of chapters added a bunch of things, changed a bunch of things around and took a real different tack. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of stuff in that version that was just like, this has too much of what was here before. I'm just, it's, it's going to go somewhere else. Okay. So, um, I, mean, I always used to sell Daredevil when the series was coming out to my friends as I thought it was the most consistently best written character, yeah. but I mean, maybe it's all, all post Frank Miller. So, I mean, and like I said, you do write a lot about, the ghost of Frank Miller on daredevil stuff in reading comics. But, yeah. uh, do we want to get to the X-Men chapter? The, I think it's the biggest chapter in the book. Sure. Um, so hilariously, the first version of the book, the X-Men chapter was like three pages. Did you just tr- deliberately try to get through it quickly? I just punted. Okay. I, yeah, it was, and there's a lot of, that's one of the Marvel characters. Uh, there's a lot of, like I, you mentioned a book that's a uh, distillation on the Phoenix alone that I had never heard of. Like there's so much written about the X-Men in general, just because it's such a loaded metaphor. Oh, the Ramsey Fawaz book, the new mutants. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's the one. Yeah. 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 This is that. I mean, X-Men was my thing growing up just because I was in the, yeah. the, the crappy nineties in like uh, uh, Jim Lee to this day, still probably one, like one of my top five artists. There's something about him that he's gotten better over the years, especially as he's gotten to, his watercolor color phase. He's a great Instagram follow. Um, but you talk about the run. This, 
you, okay, so you both were working during the height of of of. We knew exactly when the box would come in, and we were, and we were there when they opened the box. Third third we, week we, of the month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That issue where he's left the sewer, looking up. We know. Yeah. Oh, we. That was just. We couldn't believe how how we had to wait so long for the next yeah. issue. Uh. And honestly, I will say that like, since the book went into its final stages, like my favorite thing has been the X books of the last two years, like the the Hickman stuff, the Post House and Powers things, like. I read those every week I, as I read, soon as they come out. I read this week's Inferno. Just uh... oh my god, right? <laughs> well, the, the thing with Hickman to me, uh, it's too clever for me. I don't. I I have to reread. Like I have to reread people like you telling me what everything meant in every little detail. Like I'm re- <laughs> uh, Rich Johnson was on a few episodes back. His stuff, the st- bleeding cool, telling me what every. How many times Hickman is this great mirror rhyme rhyming writer where he rhymes so much of the stuff he's written in an early issue and his callbacks are amazing. Your chapter on like I was I was going to ask if you had like an Avengers chapter, but your Hickman Avengers chapter is the Avengers chapter yeah. pretty much. Yeah. And have your description of his Avengers run in and just how he's the the allure of something that's planned and improvised. Hickman being someone that has the overarching document that seems so mathematically and meticulously devised in the references, like it is, I, I, I need, I, I wish I was a smarter reader sometimes with him. Yeah. This is what, this is, this is the great thing about your book, uh, Douglas, is that this is why so many, uh, Marvel, uh, like me who have just kind of diminished out a little bit as a Marvel reader. If I hear something or hear a good buzz or a good artist or something, I'll go check it out. But I'm not uh, the monthly rabid fan, probably since Secret Wars 2, I think. Uh, I think that's what killed me. Uh, <laughs> he, he's, I, I make fun of him. He's only read the first two issues of Infinity Gauntlet. Uh, after George Perez read, yeah, that when, that's I, fair. I, yeah, uh, but um, you got the good part. You got the snap here. <laughs> <laughs> But when I read your chapter, the, uh, the Hickman, the Secret Wars, and I, I had picked up a, the hardback collection at a, at a discount place. You know, it's like, oh, I should get this or something. But I mean, I'm like, Secret Wars, da, 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 you know. But then, but and I was just sitting in the house, and all of a sudden I read your chapter. I'm like, oh, my God. And I pulled it out, and I'm, you know, diving back into it and really paying attention this time. And that's what I think was so great about your book. You get the these little snapshots to help us. So I got to the Black Panther chapter. And I think I think that very day or the next day I ran out to the comic book store that has a good stock and got the volume one of the Christopher Priest uh, oh. run because I never I I mean I knew it was out at the time I saw it I looked at it browsed through it but I never bought it and I think and then I go oh my gosh the way you wrote about that and the way you focused on Black Panther and I was just like I gotta I gotta get this one now because uh, I, I what did you think of it is my question <laughs> oh no so far I I haven't finished it but no it, it holds up. I had, I had, now I had come in on the Hudlin series that, that got, that got my attention more, yeah. but somehow the Christopher Priest, I just didn't, I get, maybe it was the artwork at the time this or something. Max Dextra, yeah. Um, he, he's hot and cold with me sometimes, but, uh, uh, yeah, I just couldn't believe how you articulated that series, uh, and how the excitement and the buzz on that is. One of the things you mentioned earlier in the book that I think is, is pretty, uh, one of the reasons I like you as a writer a lot and why I think you, certain things that are great about this book is that you mentioned you're more of a pop art critic. I mean, you mentioned the music earlier and that if something's a popular art, um, you write about it and you write about what its appeals might be. And 
I mean, lately I've been figuring that one of the reasons I think, I don't think uh, all uh, art criticism is dying per se, but I think it's changing in a way where it needs to get more advocacy, just where in general, okay. because like it's, it, it, the, the, the criticism comes to, too much to me from the consumer side of like, don't be, don't lose your money on buying something that like from a weekend matinee or something like that. Whereas... It, it's just not hard to tear down the, the suspension of disbelief. It's not really that hard to tear it down. But to point out what is great about it. And, I mean, you've, you've aggrandized, like, all of our Marvel reading and all of our comic reading, the mainstream reading, in such a great way. And did I, I – I forgot. Is it reading comics or something? Did you uh, – part of the appeal of comic books, especially mainstream comics in a way, because the art comics, they already got the art in quotes. The mainstream comics, I – I quickly, early on, started following creators than I did characters, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then that got then that led me to the history, and that led me to the journal, comics journal, and comics reader, and and the fanzines, and it, and it opened this. It was a gateway to this whole, all these different aspects, almost overshadowing just the fun of reading Spider Man fighting a bad guy. It was more so, and like you know, like like remember uh, you're talking about Salvasima. I remember that there's an ex- the last issue of the original X Men run is that they fight the Hulk in Vegas. Yeah. That's a wonderful style, and it's Sam Granger inking them, and 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 it, you get a good inker on Sal, and man, he just flies. You know, if it comes off the page, um, so I I want to get back to that. Do you think? Uh, there's still that stigma. Uh, I mean, I was, you know, I grew up under the stigma that I had to hide the comics. I wasn't cool. Uh, you, you, you could be a, you could click baseball cards and, and sport and do sports statistics and you're still okay. If you sport, if you start talking to artists and writers and comic book runs, you were kind of weird. And, uh, and uh, I could, I had, I had to kind of hide it in the early, in the sixties, the early, uh, and then, you know, even though I, uh, my friend and I did comic books, we were the artists of our, our, of our class. And so that we got a kind of a cash day with that. But um, do we? Are you think it's uh, comic books are at a point we're okay? Uh, you know, is it? You know, is our, there's highbrow, middlebrow, lowbrow? Are we still is there acceptance of it going on? You think? I mean, to see this book come out is that? Uh, I would it, think this book's a big help on this. So. Yeah, I mean, what are the responses you're getting for from your the book? work in yeah, general? Yeah, I mean, is it like how 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 crazy to spend six years on a book about guys in underwear beating each other up, or do you? Are you getting good responses, or you think this is gonna, you know, turn the tide? Hopefully, a little help turn the tide, maybe, or is the tide been turned? It might, you know. I, I think the the tide is well and truly turned. I mean, I'm like I teach a class on this stuff. Like it, it's not hard to convince people that something is interesting if you can articulate what's interesting about it to you. Uh, I think that there's much there's not so much the like. Oh no, that's a trash medium. Like no, that people don't do that now. That's not so much. Well, recurring thing with me and Ted, we always talk about our love of high low, and I think you, the book, your book distills why Marvel in particular is a good example of that. Where, uh, I, I mean, one big thing I'm going to get to this towards when we get to the last chapters, but um, we've had an argument with one of our local prof- uh, film professors about the MCU, and there's a part of me in the last few years that has been like, especially when you get the like. Um, the low-level Marvel characters on the streets who ostensibly could be just basic beating someone up, vigilantes. And you're just like, this is pretty fascist stuff. Why am I into this? 
And then you, you get to that last chapter where you talk about uh, the youth and the advocacy or you make the points that um, in the the appendix where like every character, every villain comes is completely can switch at any given moment. And Marvel may be like where I got relativistic morality from. Like <laughs> it's... <laughs> It, 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 it's yeah. almost like the comics are we, we, people who watch the movies have to sell the comics to the people who watch the movies. But to a certain extent, it's not that a lot of the comics are more sophisticated philosophically than the movies are. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're very, you're very. <laughs> So two interesting reactions I've, I've had to like, not to my book, but to, to older stuff from friends of mine. One is a friend of mine who is deeply in the comics world. Uh, she works at a graphic novel publisher and she is not a superhero comics person at all. She is passionate, passionate about the MCU. Huh. Watches, goes to every movie, watches every show. Those comics are not so interesting to her. And she more or less edits comics for a living, but like those comics, like the, the particular genre comics just never done it for her. You know what? Fine. The other, the other reaction is when, you know, I think around the time age of Ultron came out, a friend of mine who was not a comics person at all, but who was enjoying the movies was like, so Hawkeye, <laughs> are there any comics about him? Yes, yes, there are. Let me tell you. <laughs> I got a best friend that started watching the Hawkeye show and was like, is there any specific run I should be, if I'm going to watch this show, is like, there something? For once, there's an answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. Um, your, your Thor chapter, uh, you have, it seems to isolate on the Walt Simonson run, but uh, towards the end, Loki, and lately your Loki seems to be mm -hmm. a big, I mean, it's one of the opening quotes in the book. Yeah. Like, and Al Ewing is just about my favorite person working in mainstream comics right now. Did you, I, I, uh, did you finish up uh, Immortal Hulk? Yes, I did. That's crazy. That oh is, my gosh, that the the ending of Immortal Hulk was like, okay, yeah, you you stuck the landing. Good going. Yeah. Good going. And and have you read the, and and not to keep further? So you read the issue the the new uh, reboot? The um, oh, was it Ryan Otley's drawing it? I forget who. Um, um, it just came out oh, yeah. two weeks ago. The Donny Cates. Yeah, Donny Cates. Donny Cates. I have not gotten to read that yet. I'm real curious about it. One of my big things uh, Marvel has pissed me off over the years is that there is a feeling sometimes where if a run is okay or maybe good but not selling well, I kind of wanted to mention this in our Spider-Man section. Like, there's a way of just, even though they don't reboot, they do a soft reboot. Um, This Hulk, the, the this Hulk actually is like completely continues off of of immortal hulk which especially after that ending you're like doesn't this end at, at the end of time how does this how do you how do you go on from this point but it's um so far it's good anyway that that one um al ewing al ewing is, uh, is I, I i've been impressed with what i've read of his so far yeah yeah um that that loki stuff like that loki agent of asgard series um it is nobody's first comic it is but <laughs> but also it completely like does all the things i like <laughs> just my my kind of thing 
like it's more fun disposable sandmanish stuff too where like it's you know stories about stories and the characters know they're in stories about stories and yeah. they're okay with it and they're gods so um the one chapter i was i'm sorry to say that uh, i i was telling ted before we recorded that i have read everything like most of these chapters my marvel stuff is having to go homework and it was easier when you were a kid but the one chapter i've read everything on is the iron patriot chapter haha <laughs> dark rain yeah then and like you 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 kind of um you you mentioned the ending doesn't fulfill up to everything but like yeah i do remember well i was a big uh, secret invasion fanatic going into it too but like as a, I mean, as a political story like it's it, it's a good dis- or like how the politics of marvel were and how it uh, fluctuates up and down like you have that whole president's interlude chapter yeah. too yeah yeah um it it's really interesting to go back and look at dark rain now and just go like yeah um a they knew what they were talking about b when you can fictionalize the stuff and have distance from it it makes for a real exciting story when you when when, uh after you started the project full tilt after the the sun after the sun and you had run the uh current stuff um did you go back and Go through it chronologically, or were you jumping around just getting it all oh, no. in? I, I I never read chronologically at all. Uh, okay, every day was just what I felt like reading that day. Okay, because um, uh, I was wondering how the uh, can you imagine? Because uh, I was there actually when it happened, I, but uh, and you were sort of there, I think maybe when Kirby, I was I was, re- I was when, reading some of it. I was reading Dark Avengers. I was reading Iron Man. Well, I'm actually going back to when uh, I'm I'm changing the subject actually a little bit. Oh, yeah. When Kirby came back to Marvel. Great. And Great. what what the that what the shock of the the uh, wheel stopping when he came back Great. and we and we were like like oh no the Captain America run you know you had this or the Black Panther run and these things were going you know uh, the typical Marvel route and then Jack they just put Jack on it and it just comes to a halt and he does his own thing I wonder how that was uh, how you reacted to that or could you see the it was a pretty uh, huge schism there oh yeah I mean that like those comics don't look like anything else happening at that time if you think of like 70s kirby as almost the same kind of arty weirdo that steve gerber was <laughs> like that stuff it, it's it's much more interesting i mean you can you can read his 2001 as being like something that is as eccentric and personal in its way as like omega the unknown yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I at the time though, when I, oh, we couldn't stand it. It was just like because yeah. <laughs> I'm a I'm a child of Roy Thomas. You know, continuity is like you know with a capital C. And this and we and uh, but now, I go back and look at that stuff, and, and uh, sometimes I just look at it or just and or read it. And you take it on its own terms and with your own perspective, like it said. I think it actually has its own merits, and it's very uh, interesting way. So. Uh, for and we loved Jack Kirby. We even loved Jack. So you know he was like the grandfather by then uh, that we all loved. But we had the <laughs> but we had the cool uncles like Stranko and Barry Smith. We want to hang out with you know more. Yeah. So I because I um, with these all these omnibuses and these masterworks and all these things coming out, I've forgotten how um, almost casual, almost like it's almost like oh here's a chapter they're just calling up the Avengers and talking to them in a panel. 
you know, or just just the uh, the random showing up of, of them crossing over into the other titles. They were doing that all the time. Time. Uh, it was just. Uh, it, it seems more methodical now, but back then it was just like, no, no, we just called the Tony and ask him about this question. You know, so uh, I got a I got a problem, and then Avenger sixteen. I just thought, oh my gosh, uh, I uh, one of my uh, one a uh, uh, comic writer Chuck Dixon who. Um, mm-hmm. He was collecting Avengers at that time as a kid. He quit. He tells me he quit Avengers because he couldn't stand the fact that Cap is saddled with three bad guys. What's the <laughs> what is the, cook, the cookie quartet? What is the deal there? But it's such a galvanizing. And it happened right before I started buying them because I, I love the fact that Samara turned him down. You know, Samara being the usual <laughs> dick that he is, and, and and you love him for that. You know, uh, but yeah, I, I just. It, those little interludes were great. I, I almost wish you just do a, a, a full-blown sequel to this book and give us the chapter on Daredevil and all the other chapters and the ones that we haven't seen yet. That Because I like to see what you, maybe your take on Kill Raven or, uh, <laughs> uh, or you, you know, Iron Fist or Luke Cage, or you didn't, you know, you didn't really go full-blown on Doctor Strange, did you? Uh, I, I did not. Th- there you, so the one other thing that I cut that I ended up printing up as old chapbook on its own that I actually took to uh, sell the people when I went on my California tour last month was, uh, well, so as I said, I was like, grazing through all these. I was just reading whatever I felt like on any given day. And I had a spreadsheet and I would cross stuff off the spreadsheet. And eventually I realized that there were some areas of the spreadsheet that I had been avoiding, which is how I ended up locking myself into an apartment for 11 days with a case of protein drinks and 30 years of the Punisher. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, there's a... Did you at least like the Garth Ennis run? The Garth Ennis run is so good. I, like, I had actually read the Garth Ennis stuff before. Um, okay. And like, yeah, he's he's really good. I just, I there's something that I instinctively dislike about the character that's real hard to you're, you're, get around was him. it in a footnote you make the joke about the issue about that's all about the gun it's just a gun it's issue? like it's a series that's about the guns there's 10 issues of it it is literally him describing his weapons for 10 issues it's by elliot brown who did all the technical drawings for like the official handbook of the marvel universe and stuff and uh it's just him talking about his weapons for 10 issues except there's a little bit in one issue where he talks about his kayak because it turns out he likes <laughs> kayaking too this is why it's harder to defend 90s comics because i don't know did you i think you mentioned the marvel swimsuit issue at one point too i, I remember have... that being in a grocery store and almost picking that up like 90s comics there were several weird, of those there were they, they published it for a few years running uh there's also i i know i didn't get to talk about this Marvel's annual and quarterly reports to their shareholders were in comics form. Yeah. Oh, I this and I'm they were, familiar with. They were like like little adventures with you know, the Avengers or the X Men, like getting into some sort of situation where they would end up just talking about like all of the licensing plans that Marvel had for that year. It, they're they're quite a thing. I, I forgot. Did you did you include uh, what about the Western characters, the cowboys that, that were, were retroly the the big three? You know, the big three, which is in the '60s that lasted through the '60s. Not the not all those Atlas ones, but did, did you read those? Uh, uh, I I uh, those were outside of my yeah. Uh, I, I I drew the border outside of that. Like when they came to the 20th century, I read those, and I read some of them anyway. I read like I read the Kirby stuff. I read the stuff from 61, 62. I read some of the weird Gary Friedrich stuff. Um, 
but generally like if it was not happening in the quote present day i thought okay i don't have to read this yeah because i think you know uh wasn't retroactively of course they lose they lose the license every once in a while but the the conan it was in conan te- technically like the pre-universe on that planet uh, uh him and cull that and it all there, there, and it, it all came down and, and, and then the marvel story and there the, is in fact a footnote on one of the earliest pages of the book which says if you are thinking about bringing up the serpent crown <laughs> i will give you a nickel not to yeah yeah okay i saw <laughs> I, I i saw that footnote uh did, now, godzilla yes did read godzilla did read micronauts did read rom like uh shogun warriors like if like if they are in the 616 and interacting with with that world then of course i read it um marginal cases i read you know there's an issue of uh top dog that was originally supposed to be an issue of peter parker the spectacular spider-man i'm pretty sure so i read that um yeah yeah I, I, here's one here's another question uh sergeant fury and his Alan commandos that's in the past Except for number 100, which is the amazing one where all the uh, like retired uh, Helen Commandos are having a banquet and Martin Goodman is there. And then uh, somebody like shoots Reb Ralston. Yes. And then, uh, but then he pulls through and everybody sings, uh, I'd like to teach the world to sing. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty amazing issue. Yeah. It, it's yeah it's a it's a whole thing it's Not- but it's a it's a uh, that's one of my favorite runs because John Severin uh, inked uh, well he drew he totally illustrated three issues. And then he inked it for a long time, and it's just a beautiful looking book. Uh, even though you got Gary Friedrich writing it, and and you get this, it's a World War II story, so it's kind of kind of wacky, wonky in some ways. I realized uh, hearing you two talking about, um, I do realize what my first Marvel comic was. I don't remember oh, yeah. which issue. It was a He-Man issue. Speaking of uh, this misbegotten licensed issues, wow, it would have been a He-Man or or a Transformers issue, which Transformers has that weird, bizarre history of coming from all the marvel writers too but and rob's a good example of what i'm talking about how i got in how i still stay in the comic books and it's read characters i i really would never get near but it, you know especially a toy tie i'm just uh but then i but it's also dicko's drawing it and everybody just, just for the last year or so but right yeah. and, and and everybody wanted the, the ink dicko so all mm-hmm. of a sudden you got craig russell inking issues <sighs> And you got Bob Layton and all these other different. I'm like, I got to get this now. I guess it's 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 incredible to see this happening, uh, even though I'm, I would care less about the character. And there's all those beloved issues of GI Joe too. Well, if Pop and that wasn't consistent as much. Uh, okay. I think art wise, I don't know. But there, I think Russ Heath did maybe some. I think. But one thing isn't the Michael Golden. What, didn't he do the silent issue? Is that the GI Joe? One? I, I think the silent issue. What is the silent issue? I thought that was Russ Heath, or was that? I don't know. <laughs> It's Larry Hama, and I didn't. I didn't yeah. know who else? But yeah. I thought Michael Golden had done some GI Joe stuff that like got retroactively beloved. But I, I mean, I, I did didn't the, read it. So he did the Nom. The Nom, Nom. Yeah, yeah. Nom is. Oh, I'm gold. thinking of the Nom. I'm totally thinking of the yeah. Nom. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, I should have read these issues first. Um, <laughs> not, not twenty, not twenty-seven thousand, but. Doug, that's my two favorite chapters are the last two chapters. Um, going back earlier to the the morality issue, I think your chapter, uh, what is it, good is a thing you do. Yeah, yeah, that it, it is funny. I I I, I didn't. You really sold me on a, a, a Squirrel Girl. I I really only read that last issue that you so poignantly describe at the very end of the chapter. But the ethos there is just like an ailment to all the problems I have with some of the, the 
some mainstream comics are like now in the crime fight, the the anti crime fighting stance, you know. Yeah, uh, I that whole Ryan North Squirrel Girl run I love so much. It is so sweet and so funny and absolutely takes its job of like we are going to have a superhero in the Marvel universe absolutely seriously and also doesn't take it seriously at all. Yep. Are you reading uh, Jason Aaron's Avengers right now? I read the first part of it. I am not up to date on it. Okay. Uh, I reread the Squirrel Girl chapter today and I, I'm loving it. It's great, but yeah. it made me realize that there is a Galactus beat that he steals from Squirrel Girl and in, in a, in a, in a, it's, it's like a one page aside, but, but they're la- great. The last chapter wow. is the one where I feel like a lot of the, um, I guess the emotion of the book, like, like it's a journey of like reading to your son and getting the next generation of comics really brought stuff home. At least for me. Like, yeah. Where's yeah. he, where's your son at with comic books now, nowadays? Um, we still read an issue together every night. Uh, uh, me and my wife and my son, um, we are. Your wife's involved with f- this still too. Even after but, superior Spider-Man. Yep. Yep. Uh, she liked that. She liked that too. Uh, we are going through Dr. Doom's entire career uh, <laughs> because I, I, have my, I have my podcast about Doom. Um, you know about this? No. Or, oh, uh, so time. It is on, it's been on hiatus for a couple months because of the book, but it will be coming back soon. This is a podcast I've been doing called The Voice of Latveria, <laughs> uh, which is ostensibly a Cold War era propaganda broadcast uh, from Latverian state radio, you know, shortwave radio. Um and is more actually me talking to somebody every week about one of Doom's comics appearances uh, in the order he experienced them, which is different from Marvel continuity because he has a time machine. Um, and more genuinely than that, it is uh, me talking to a guest every week about whatever the hell they feel like talking about. Like my, So one of my favorite episodes so far, uh, my guest was Alex Ross, not the comics artist Alex Ross, but the classical music historian Alex Ross. Uh, the rest is noise. And, this is a great book. Yeah, um, and he wrote that book, Wagnerism. Uh, yeah, I want to read that. And so there is an issue of Invaders where a time traveling Doctor Doom crosses <laughs> paths with Hitler, who has gone to see a Wagner opera in Berlin during World War II. And I was like, Alex, tell me about the role of Wagner's music in Nazi Germany. And so he just talked about that for forty-five minutes, and that's the episode. <laughs> I've, I've got a friend who's been trying to sell me on um, the Warren Ellis Doom 2099, which I've never read. Were the 2099 comics in, in, involved with this? I didn't remember them. Uh, no, but I read them anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Warren Ellis Doom 2099, like, it is proto Warren Ellis. Okay. It is him kind of testing out all the stuff he's going to do later. Um, and he's still in the like, look how shocking I can be phase. Okay. Uh, it, it's, I mean, this was the, you know, Marilyn Manson going door to door trying to shock people phase. Um, <laughs> Onion headline. But uh, like, you, you can see he's like, he's building up to what he's going to become. Okay. He's just not there, which is interesting to see. Um, and it's interesting to see the last batch of 2099 comics, which is just, okay, this line is doomed. We're just going to kick everything over. I, I never read any of the, the end of it. 
I never know yeah. what happened. Um, it, like we're gonna kick. It's not again. It's not that good. Um, okay. There's like a couple of stories that Kyle Baker did in 2099 Unlimited. Really? That are yeah, and it's like, like I think Kyle Baker with John Francis Moore. Um, okay. And like, and it's Kyle Baker doing like full on Kyle Baker, which is fantastic <laughs> to see. Um, yeah, uh, the 2099 line is kind of a mess. Kind of a mess. I, I, I like Peter David a lot. I feel like he's an unsung hero in the 90s. But um, I mean, and I think Spider-Man's going to be getting a little bit of a revival because of that trailer yeah. that just came out oh, the yeah. other day. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you get, have you gotten up to or past the uh, the Wally Wood, Wally Wood Doctor Doom series? Uh, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Run? Uh, we, we're a little bit past that. Uh, I had Paul Tobin on to talk about that. That was really fun. Uh, yeah, that's a real interesting little run there. Uh, yeah. you know, was Amazing Adventures or Astonish? One of those anthology Astonishing books. Tales, yeah. Astonishing yeah. Tales, right. Yeah. And I actually had Jerry Conway on to talk about like the, the story that he wrote in there, which is the one where like we find out about Doom fighting the devil every year for his mother's soul. Oh, yeah, right. Right, the Marvel um, Superheroes issue. We, yeah. You know, part of the reason, going back to the Hickman Secret War stuff, uh, part of the reason I had trouble enjoying it was because there was that tension when it was coming out that they were going to finally reboot. And I was kind of pissed at that. And I also, I was such a big Ultimate reader, and it felt like Ultimates, it has very similar to the 2099, like, there was a point in Ultimates where, the reason, if you had to tell me why, ask me why I loved it, it was because I felt like they were synthesizing the stories in a little, in a really good way, in a very tight way, and then it suddenly... Uh, Reed Richards is a bad guy and they started saying oh no it's because we can do stuff we don't do in the other titles and I was like I don't think that's why I read the Ultimates titles at all and so that was the tension with Hickman where I was like "Ugh, okay what's happening of course we're still waiting and now you'll have to wait for the book on uh, the new universe uh, from you Douglas (laughs) (laughs) you do mention the universe in a footnote don't you I read all that too <laughs> I, I didn't. Do you I like, like the, DP7? I genuinely like DP7 a bunch. Do right. you like the Warren Ellis stuff that he redid? Um, the New Universal. Yeah. Yeah. That that really does not. That that didn't click for me. Okay. Um, well, I think I, I'm not. I'm not going to defend it. I don't have a strong opinion on either. Which like way. one of the one of the tie-ins to that was I think the first thing Kieran Gillen wrote for Marvel. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um. But yeah. yeah, no, that it's not it's not good, Alice. Um, but uh, I loved I I've been I kind of dropped out of X Men like in the mid eighties, but I that grand design by Ed Piscopo. Oh, that's so good. I just I just fell in love with that thing. I just yeah. like I had I knew hip hop was out. I kind of looked at it, but I didn't I didn't pull the trigger on buying it yet. Um, but I, I I still have unread issues just because I know it's a thing you have to sit down and really yeah. and really I'm just read. like I love the fact that you know here's one panel from an issue, you know, uh, 142, and the next panel could be an issue from uh, uh, retroactively fitted into the continuity is issue 38, and how he put it all the, this mosaic into uh, uh, into one giant piece. Uh, I'm just like wow, this is I love this, and that's I, I really uh, got me kind of a. Uh, because I, 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 amongst my friends, we're all kind of like, we don't. The buzz of X Men's kind of awful. We're not. I know you guys. Are, you're talking about the new X Men stuff. I haven't read that, so maybe I need to. I need to rethink you, that. You, and the X Men chapter, I know, is a long chapter. You didn't mention the Joss Whedon run. Oh well, I was there for that. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, um, I mean X Men has always been up and down yeah, post Claremont. It's it's uh, so mentioned. two notes on that. Uh, note number one is that. Uh, 
I thought I thought that the X Men Grand Design was fascinating, and one of the things I thought was fascinating about it is what it does with Days of Future Past. Oh, okay. Which is that it like moves it to the end, like makes that the climax of the entire thing. Right. You, I mean, you also had that note in the X Men chapter that ever since they've X Men has been fighting uh, or recycling uh, uh, Dark Phoenix and Days of Future Past, which goes to our Hickman Inferno stuff too. Yeah. Like, yeah, Inferno number three. Not a spoiler to say there is a moment in that where just everything falls open, and you're like, "Oh, this is the Days of Future Past plot like we have never seen it yeah. before." But although I had to have it explained to me online to figure out exactly why, which that Hickman is, I'm just and not. She, the... she, yeah. uh, like the character in question literally says like all of my days of future past <laughs> like like i'm gonna hang a lantern on this in case you didn't notice what we're doing here i'm a blockhead yeah um the other thought is that that the idea of rearranging these things that were improvised month to month that were just like what are we gonna do because we didn't know 10 pages ago what now is going to look like uh, doing what you did in Grand Design and turning it into like, but yeah, what if we thought about it all from the beginning? Mark Russell is doing that right now with uh, Fantastic Four Life Story. Uh, and I, I, first... I was, I've been reading, or I read the uh, Zdarsky Spider-Man Life Zdarsky, Story, yeah. but I haven't read the Mark Russell yeah. one. The, so the, I like the, the Zdarsky one. The Mark Russell one is doing something much more like a Grand Design type okay. thing. Um, the first issue of it actually starts with hybridizing the origin story and this man this monster and what reed sees when he is in this alternate space is a vision of galactus coming sometime in the future i thought i'd read the first issue huh i don't remember this wow yeah like it so this is not fantastic for grand design this is a this this, this is, is uh, life story. This is life story. Yeah, the okay. the Mark Russell one, uh, and like it's really thinking about like okay, if we were setting up the beginning of Fantastic Four to set up the dramatic conflicts and foreshadow everything that's going to be happening after this, this is how this is what the first issue would look like. Whenever Secret Wars, the Hickman Secret Wars came out, I was selling it to you guys uh, like uh, as like. Whenever I would tell people like, oh yeah, they show Doctor Doom's face for the first time, and then I was like, oh that's or I or I'm sure they it's but I mean that was the first time I remember seeing it, and then the la- that last issue felt like it was supposed to be Hickman ending his Fantastic Four run and ending all of Fantastic Four and mainly ending the Reed Victor relationship, especially at the end when they rhyme the image of Doom's face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was. Um, what do uh. Speaking of endings, two things, another two points. I guess you read all those the end stories of all the characters. They're, yeah. they're, they're all just, what, just one-offs, right? They, uh, yeah. The, uh, they are not so much in continuity. Although, interestingly, so Leah Williams did a magic what-if story uh, to which her Doctor Strange the End is a sequel. Mm. Okay. Uh, because I was just, I was just, I just got a copy of the. Uh, I've had them individually, but I got, I got the hardback of the Daredevil one. Where oh, it, in the days, end of days, yeah, that's yeah, a great yeah one. end of days. 
And then Alan Davis did a couple of, I think they did one of the FF maybe. Um, but what, okay, what about... Oh, real quickly, the Garthenus, the end is a really good one too. <laughs> yeah, Pub- yeah, the Punisher one, oh my God. Uh, yeah. That's dark, dark, dark. It's dark. Very dark. Uh, what about uh, Earth X and that, uh, the Alex... You know what? I did not read that. I'm wondering. I'm thinking. I always thought it'd be nice to see the Marvel comics grow old with me, and so, and I'm thinking that's what Alex was doing with that. I think wasn't it? Uh, that's a perception that if if the if the certain certain at a certain point in the Bronze Age, they just this is where they all go. Peter Parker gets a belly. The thing has kids. Uh, things all this happens. I don't know, but that's. That's another. That would be another good topic for you there. To, to so the, there's actually there's a Fantastic Four annual from 1998, where uh, Ben ends up in like an alternate world where the Fantastic Four have been aging in real time since like, 1961. Oh, okay. I'll have to look uh, that up. It's it's a Carl Kiesel thing. Carl Kiesel is like the unacknowledged great Fantastic Four guy. I can I can see that. Like. He's never done. He an has a good Daredevil run. run too, right? Yeah, uh, like he's never done an extended run of Fantastic Four. But whenever somebody needs to just like come in and take care of a Fantastic Four thing, he does it, and he gets those characters super, super strongly. We didn't bring up the whole. Uh, I had never heard fourteen years the sliding timeline thing. Oh yeah, your your oh, your yeah. no, analysis of it's great, but I never heard the number fourteen as like Marvel Universe. Was is it thirteen 14. or fourteen? I thought ish. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's probably fifteen now. Okay. Because you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the fact now, like, uh, but the one thing that doesn't slide is Cap, right? In some ways, or you. The, ha- I, I was just reading uh, today. Flash. Well, you know, in the MC. I, I, that's what's so crazy about the MC movies. It's like the gap. When I was a kid, you know, Nick Fury, Reed, and Ben were World War II veterans. Right. You know, and so you know the thing that, that Mark Wade has done now with his, his history of the Marvel Universe? Um, any reference to either World War II or Vietnam that has to be World War II in Vietnam and has to have been relatively recent is now the war in Siang Kong. Ha! <laughs> I was um, I was well, okay. I, I was reading the appendix. You you pointed out that um, uh, Tony Stark uh, was behind enemy lines in an armed conflict, which yeah. was a good way to doing it. But there was also that great uh, part where you describe um, Flash Thompson uh, going to Vietnam, but then losing his his legs in Operation in Desert Storm. Yeah, or, yeah, in Iraq much later. Yeah, okay, yeah. But the, yeah, that whole that whole sliding uh, that's. Yeah, that that I, the, I, that was hard because I've always been trying to articulate that to people, and it's just very hard to point what the deal is on that. Uh, I mean, with Captain America, the sliding timeline actually makes it more and more poignant as time goes on. Mm. That he was a hero of World War II, and then he was frozen in the ice and came out thirteen years ago. How did? How did? Speaking of the sliding, how does your? Uh, the, the lot, what is it? The John Byrne, the Lost Years, the Hidden Years, or not, the Hidden not, Years? Yeah. Well, that's the, well, there's the X Men one, but well, there's the other one with the uh, the. No, fifth... uh, yeah. Um, right. Oh. I, I know the one you mean. The, the... Yeah. And, uh, did, does that does that still work, or is that totally gone? Uh, evaporated. I mean, people don't really talk about it that much. Right. Uh, the the one with the the first line or whatever they were called. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, there there's. 
sure, you know, you can, you can, there can be a story about some stuff that happened during that period that there were not a lot of superheroes running around after World War II and before, you know, everything started popping off. And I guess it would now be 2006. Yeah, what, Chick, didn't Chicken do an Avenger secret with the Nick Fury? Yeah, 1959. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, that's yeah. a good series too. Well, speaking of Byrne, like uh, I was completely unaware of all the X Men stuff he's been doing on his website until I read the book. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, they, didn't he just put out the other day his origin of Wolverine? Probably. I've I've not been following what he's been doing with that lately, but I I, I well, bet see, you know. I, I just saw an article about it. I I, I I didn't know about this until I just hadn't. I mean, I, I knew he did that Marvel thing in the early aughts, but that was about it. Uh, like where's the son of Satan chapter? <laughs> that's that's a whole thing. Um, I will say, like in terms of like the characters growing up at the same time and at the same rate as their audience, this is where I once again wave the flag for Judge Dredd. <laughs> okay, which has been like Judge Dredd has been running since 1977, and the characters have aged in real time for 44 years. So they are all 44 years older now than they were when it started. And I, has anybody died in that universe? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. They they die. They do not come back. Um, Dredd himself is pushing 80 now, and you know his body is falling apart on him, and that's been a big thing. Wow. Yeah. Are you, are you a 2080 reader? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, I... Dread reader... Dread writers talk occasionally about, like, okay... He's going to have to die at some point. What do we do with the strip then? And I think a lot of Dread writers have their own ideas of like, okay, here, here is how we continue the strip after Dread himself is no longer in it. Um, now, and that's interesting. What, what, what is it about Dread's Dread that grabs your attention as opposed to like the Punisher doesn't, you know? Uh, so the... Dread starts out for its first five years. It is a fantasy of political violence with no consequences. Okay. And then the consequences start happening and they never stop. And one writer, John Wagner has been writing like at least 50% of it, like since the beginning and has really, really been playing the long game. We see things happen and then we see their consequences 20 years later. And we, and it's, it's made clear, like there's kind of a pivot point in the story where you realize, oh my God, this guy is a fascist. And the team that we have been rooting for all along has destroyed democracy. They have destroyed everything about their country. And they believe that they are the only solution and all they can do is make things worse. Do you see this in like uh, the Ox Garland script or whatever he was proposing to do with the movies? Yeah. Um, so the Alex, the Alex Garland movie, I like that movie a lot. Um, and what that movie is, is like, it is not like the grand sweep of dread. It is like, this is his Thursday. Okay. This is a typical day for him. Uh, was there hints what at Alex it? Garland's, what was there hints at it that, or what you're talking about? The, the, the... Well, I mean, it tiny bit, a little bit. Okay. Uh, what he want, what Alex Garland said, like, yeah, if I if I got to do another dread movie, I'd want to do the Chopper story. And 
the chopper story is a like this is a character who's, who's recurring character for a while uh and he is somebody who is uh so if dread is lawful neutral um or lawful evil uh chopper is true neutral like he wants to ride his machine without being hassled by the man and the end of the classic Chopper story is Chopper being led away in chains while the entire city cheers for him. I, I just want to thank you for bringing this back around to be in a movie podcast, too, just for just, <laughs> yeah. just a little bit. Yeah. Hey, so yeah. did uh, so uh, how would you suggest uh, buying Judge Dredd at this point. And, uh, Look, I think Ted's wanting to ask, where do you start? Well, no, because they're, where do you start? Okay. Well, they're doing they're, uh, they're doing that complete run right now, aren't they? The, uh, they're so they, there's the, yeah, there's the complete case files. There is a book called America, Judge Dredd America, which is my favorite starting point to recommend. It is it plays to the strengths of dread as a thing that spans decades and you can see the change in the society that it's about it is a story from 1990 a story from 1996 and a story from 2006 that are about a terrible thing that happens what happens six years later because of it and what happens 10 years later because of that there is a new edition of it that is out that's like judge dread classics america you don't want that one um, you want the one that had the cover is a terrified looking woman with an American flag burning behind her. Hmm. Um, so that that is one super super solid starting point. Um, if you want the sort of classic early adventures, the volume of the case files that I love is volume five. Uh, and volume like it's got Brian Bolland drawing part of it. It's got Ian Gibson drawing part of it. Like the, f the first half of it is like a bunch of like short, fun, cool looking adventures. And then the second half is a story that went on for half, half a year, 26 weekly episodes um, about a nuclear war between Dread City and effectively Moscow, uh, where the climax is, you know, our action hero committing genocide. Like he he like personally nukes Moscow. Um, yeah, I'm embarrassed to say that. Basically, I'm I I, I have all the Bolin stuff uh, in my collection yeah. in, my, yeah. in my library, but I I've never followed through uh, as it went along. But now you got me very very interested. Are you uh, are you going to be writing any more? Uh, not that I know of. Okay, you know, <laughs> I mean, it it was kind of a fluke that I ended up writing this. Um, Dread has almost always been so it's a series of that's a brutal satire of American culture and American politics that has almost always been made by and for British people. <laughs> uh, and IDW uh, has been publishing Dread stuff on and off for a few years. They had license and through a complicated change of circumstances, I got I got to do this miniseries for them. Um, but uh, which is actually set five years before the beginning of the British series. Do you, um, are we going to have another, uh, as a little, I mean, I, I, if you take a big project, I'll be happy for this gap, but is there going to be another gap between your next book? Do you have, you have any ideas? I mean, no, you just took this, just finished. <laughs> I just finished this. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm, I'm batting around some ideas. 
The main idea I am batting around, I'm going to keep under my hat for the moment, but uh, it probably has almost nothing to do with comics. Not quite nothing, but almost nothing. I mean, Um, I still need to read the James Brown book, so I still have more, more... I can, I can, I can have that in between the gap. Although I think I'll be able to get through that fast. Getting back to all the Marvels quickly. Did, uh, yeah. did you have you heard from any of the higher ups in Marvel from publishing or, uh, or the, or the corporate uh, aspect of them, of, any, of your book? Any response or any reaction? Or the comics uh, community in general? From oh yeah, of- I'm curious. Like yeah, well the, you got an interview on the Comics Journal, so that was cool. You know, uh, I got an interview. Um, I have done interviews for two of Marvel's podcasts. Okay. So, um, like, I know people there know about it. Great. Okay. Um, it was, like, this book was not for them. Right, well, yeah. <laughs> But, <laughs> but uh, they know about it, you know. Uh, I have not had an 80-ton weight dropped on my on my house. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I, just to wind it down, I wanted to, I think the, the thing I want to thank you most for for writing this book is, like, I it's, it's find a way of, making me realize that like comics maybe com- everyone this, you mentioned in reading reading comics about how from the beginning like they knew they can appeal mature because there's a shame in like, these characters for children and yet so many of us worry that we may have an arrested development for keeping reading these books over and over but you you distill the high low appeal and you, it makes me realize I come back to these books so often to feel like a kid again, but not because I'm trying to retreat to my childhood or anything like that or some nostalgia. Like there's new ideas coming through this. There's, there's. I always used to compare my, when I try to sell my friends or comics to my friends. Why I read the monthly pamphlets? It's like there's so much unbridled and inconsistent creativity month to month, and it it's. Could it be that the fact that we listen to music, old, you know, past, present, few, uh, we can't listen to future music, but past, we listen to an old song, you know, we put it on, listen to a Beatles album, we uh, look at a painting that we like that's hanging up on our wall by. But this is, but the but thing, again, I, you know, this is new though. It's like you, you point out why, like, because you, you, no, no, you, no. Well, that's what I'm trying to say is that, it, I, that it just continues. Yeah, and, and the fact that I can, I go to my my reading room, which is mostly comic book stuff in one room i have and it's like i'll look at i look at the kirby stuff in a new light a new discovery it's like looking at a painting and finding something new in it i mean does that make sense what i'm trying to say uh that but the painting's not over no the painting's not over in these these comic book store i mean that looking at the art i mean i may not read the story in fact i may just go through it and look at it in different ways or i may read the story i don't know i think you pointed out why i still keep reading basically and i and i thank you for yeah <laughs> I'm sorry we're babbling. I'm just trying to... <laughs> I am here for it. I am listening and enjoying. <laughs> uh, Douglas Wolk, thank you for being on the podcast. All of the Marvels, please buy this book. It's so damn good. It makes a great Christmas gift, which uh, a lot of people are going to get in their stockings this year. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it.